David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Lord, thank You for Your Word. That You have not left us to our own wisdom, our own devices to try and make our way in this dark world. You have not left us without guidance through the, the Word that You have spoken through the prophets and You have not left us without guidance through the Word that You spoke through the prophet. Jesus, we thank You that You have come into the world and You have given life. Lord, I pray that Your life would continue as we read Your Word, that we would be invigorated and encouraged, that You would help us to recall all the goodness that You have caused to be towards us. That we would rejoice, not, not just as we rejoiced in song and in music, but that rejoicing would continue as we consider all of Your goodness towards us in our affliction. Help Your Word to come alive. Give us understanding. And give us guidance so that as we face affliction, that we would honor You in it and have comfort. Lord, for I know that's what You want. So, in light of that, comfort us. Comfort Your people through Your Word. We ask this in Your name. Amen. So the title I chose for this message may come across as a bit cheesy but it's really purposeful and it's not meant to be cute and uh, that'll make that'll become a little more clear um, as we as we get into the structure of the psalm uh, this is psalm 34 and i've titled it the abc's of an afflicted believer's comfort and i believe that's what david's purpose is in this psalm is he he wants to give us a grid of how to think when we're undergoing affliction so that we would be comforted and I want to just dive right into it, even looking at the superscript, which is that portion of Scripture right underneath the, the, the title where it says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, 
This points us to the background of the psalm, and really understanding the background of the psalm will give us significant insight to David's situation. Um, If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, we have a short section that discusses what is highlighted here. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands? So just, I'm going to stop there. Just recognize the fact that David has come to the great city of his greatest enemies, the Philistines. See, David had killed literally tens of thousands of the Philistine soldiers. And, of course, he is known for his great battle with Goliath, their champion. And even as a young man, maybe even a teenager, I don't know exactly how old he was when he killed Goliath, but he slew their great champion. And so he was the greatest enemy of the Philistines, and he shows up on their front porch in a totally vulnerable situation. His own king was hunting him down to kill him. This would be like Osama bin Laden, say, ten years ago, before he was captured and killed, showing up at the entrance of the White House seeking asylum. They take care of me because my enemies are after me. So that's David's situation. In verse 12 it says, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Asius, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Asius said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so Ashish sends him away. And you may note that, of course, in the, in the superscript, it says it's, he did this before Abimelech. You might wonder, well, who was it, Abimelech or Ashish? Why the difference? Well, many kings had dynastic names. Think of Pharaoh or um, Caesar or Darius. Those are all titles. They're actually not first names. And they were known by their titles. Similar to the fact that we might call our head of state the president. And other times we might refer to him as Barack Obama. So Ashish would be the personal name of the king of Gath. Abimelech was actually his title. Like our head of state is the president. The other thing I want to note about this psalm, as far as its background, is the structure of the psalm. Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm, similar to Psalm 119. In in your Bibles, in Psalm 119, it actually has, it's broken up according to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so each line of that section in Psalm 119 starts with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Here, each line of Psalm 34 begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with the Hebrew alphabet letter Aleph. And so it's poetical, but it's also also useful for recalling the material that David's presenting. I think that's why he wrote it this way. It's not just to be poetical, it's to be memorable. Often my students will prepare for tests by developing similar acrostics to help them memorize their material. Uh, The military also uses acrostics for factual recall because in the middle of a crisis situation or in a stressful situation, you don't always think as clearly. And so if you have an acrostic or some sort of memory device, it helps you uh, think through, often in order, the steps that you might need to take or the information that you need. And I think David wants his hearers to remember what he's saying So that when they come to a crisis situation, they wouldn't just lose their heads. They wouldn't panic. They would, they would recognize, okay, I'm in the midst of an affliction, of affliction. How do I need to think? How do I need to respond? 
Because he recognizes, as we see in verse 10, that all believers will suffer affliction. And he seeks to assist the afflicted by giving them this grid to help them think in a crisis. And so that's the the reason for the odd title of my message, the ABCs. Because this is really, if if it wasn't in Hebrew, we could see it in English, it would be like A. uh, All praise to God, for instance. B. C. And so I think David wrote this for the comfort of the afflicted. The first point of the outline is acclamation for God's deliverance or praise for God's deliverance. And that's what David does in verses 1 through 7. The focus of these first three verses is clearly upon the praise of God. Notice, notice the words he uses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Verse 3, magnify the Lord. Let us exalt His name together. So again and again, the theme that David wants to emphasize is praise, exaltation. You can hardly say it any other way. He's, he's absolutely delighted. He's astonished. He's full of praise for what God has done for him. So he says he's going to praise Him continually in light of how He has just been delivered. He is so ecstatic. He he wants not only to help people see how God has been good to him, but he just he can't help but praise and sing of the Lord's goodness. And the second set, verses 4 through 7, explain the reason for David's joy. God had delivered him from all of his fears. The repeated ideas in this section are sought, looked to, cried, Delivered, never be ashamed, saved. So the point is, when the needy cry out, God will answer them. God will deliver them when they cry out to Him. The other thing I want to point out is in verses 4 and 7, the use of the word fear. In fact, the particular word he uses for fear in verse 4 actually only occurs three times in the Old Testament. It's a fairly uh, rare word. And it's often translated dreaded. It's actually a more intense word than the typical word for fear. And this is understandable considering the horrible situation he's in. He's had to flee his own king, his own country. And in that time of history, there was no other recourse. If if your own people wouldn't care for you, You had to seek refuge someplace else. Well, where is the only place he can seek refuge? His mortal enemy. He's killed more Philistines than any other people, and he's gone to them to seek refuge. So, of course, he feels absolutely alone. And he dreads what may happen to him. And despite all these things he dreaded, the Lord rescued him from all of them. All of them. I mean, think of what that would be. It's hard to put ourselves in a similar situation where our life was on the line because our own government was out to kill us for something we haven't, for no evil that we had done. And the Lord rescued him from all those fears. Which brings me to another word I want to highlight in verse 5. The word radiant. He says, all who look to the Lord for deliverance from their dread are radiant. The word itself means to beam with joy. Consider how a, uh, how a bride beams on her wedding day or when a, when a little child gets a good grade on something they've done or they're just pleased with a, a, a picture they've drawn and they're just delighted that you're taking interest in them. They're beaming with joy. It says, those who cry out to the Lord not only are saved, but they experience radiant joy in their deliverance. Which is, of course, what he was experiencing. His countenance was totally uplifted. And he was thrilled because of what God had done for him. And what a testimony this presents to both the believers who are afflicted, but also to the ungodly, who maybe even are causing the affliction. The power of praise in a testimony is something I think we often overlook. I think often in our, in our approach to evangelism or in sharing our faith, 
maybe it's a cultural thing, or for whatever reason, we tend to focus on the rationale for our faith. And often when we're sharing the gospel with people, we tend to share the truths of the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. And that's good. But I think what's often missing is just sincerity. A love for the truth that you're sharing. And, and consider this, especially in line with what David's doing. He is rejoicing. He's praising. He's delighting in what God has done and I, I think one of the reasons that charismatic churches were so appealing and experienced so much growth over the last 30 years is because they spent so much time and put so much emphasis on creating a worship experience. They wanted to create an experience where uh, people, in a sense, felt tangibly the presence of God. And so you'd have visitors come into a church and they'd see people with their hands raised, tears coming down their face, just pouring out their heart to God, totally unashamed. And people would think, these people know something I don't. They could tell by their behavior that these people feel something, believe something that they want. So it wasn't just that they were getting presented a philosophy or even truth. It was a combination of truth that was seen in the words of the music they might have been singing, but also in the uh, emotion of those who were singing. And my point is not that I think we need to go in that direction in our worship service, not at all, hardly. But rather, it's simply to illustrate the evangelistic power of genuine worship and praise. When we're just sincere, and again, my point isn't even so much for uh, singing in the midst of congregational worship as much as it is in our own uh, sharing of our faith with our family or our friends. Do we praise God? Are we rejoicing in the truths that we're sharing or are we just simply trying to be rational? Because that's what people see. That's what people are moved by is when we truly believe it. And you can tell. And this doesn't mean you have to put on, be somebody you're not, like fake emotion. There's actually nothing more disgusting actually than a person who's affecting emotion trying to put it on there's nothing more unappealing than a than than fakeness but how appealing it is when we see genuine worship and praise consider psalm 145 4 one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And in that, if you have one generation praising the goodness and glory of God to the younger generation. And I think there's an evangelistic element there. It's not just shall teach of your good works. There is a part of that, but it's praising. That the, that the kids would see their, pra- their parents praising and delighting in God. And they, they, they're moved by that. And they can see the sincerity that God is real, not just an idea. So I think for us, our message should correspond to what we believe. We need to be real, not just share our thoughts, but share our hearts with people. One of my favorite stories is of David Hume, who was an 18th century British philosopher. He rejected historic Christianity. And he once met a friend hurrying along a London street, and his friend pulled him aside and said, Where are you going? And he said, I'm going to go hear George Whitfield preach. And he says, you don't believe anything of what he teaches, do you? And Hume's like, no, but he does. He wanted to hear Whitfield preach because he knew Whitfield believed what he said. That was what was compelling. This is a man who believes what he's teaching, and I want to listen to that sort of man. The power of praise in our personal testimonies very moving and i think that's what david wants to get at here in psalm 34 praise the lord and as he is praising god in his affliction or really after his affliction he wants us to praise him in his, to, to come along with him in his praise of god and to remember in our own affliction we can still praise him Secondly, I want to look at the benefits of fearing the Lord, verses 8 through 14. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Even young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Two particular things stand out in this section, and that's the repeated themes of sensory experience and also this exhortation to fear the Lord. So you note um, all the ways David highlights his senses. He uses words like taste, see, listen. He points to the tongue and the lips. And his point is he wants his listeners to understand that the, the protection of the Lord is not just some ethereal concept. It's not an idea. He's not just attributing some unlikely phenomena to some great cosmic power. It's not that he just saw something good and said, oh, that must be from God. He's saying the protection of God is substantially real. It's empirically real. So real you could taste it, is his point. The Hebrew word he uses for taste in verse 8 doesn't actually refer to like a casual sampling, which we might infer from the English word. Rather, it highlights the need to experience something personally. Try it out. Try God out is his point. It's like, I'll use a, an elementary illustration. It's like Sam I am trying to get his friend to try green eggs and ham. And at the very end of that story, Sam says, you don't like them, so you say, try them, try them, and you may. Try them, and you may, I say. And his friend responds, Sam, if you will let me be. I will try them. You will see. And he tries them. Of course, we all know what happens. Say, I like green eggs and ham. I do. I like them, Sam. I am. And I would eat them in a boat and I would eat them with a goat. I will eat them in the, tr- in the rain and in the dark and on a train and in a car and in a tree. They are so, so good, you see. And so Sam was trying to bring his friend along. Just try them. If you just try them. You will like them. And his friend discovered they were worth trying. So much so that he would eat them anytime, any place, anywhere. He just needed to taste and see they were good. And similarly, those who are afflicted just need to taste and see the goodness of his creator. And they will see that he is all satisfying. And, in, and because of that, he will, he will meet all of their needs. Which is his point. Even young lions, which is the most fierce animal, uh, the most self-sufficient animal that uh, the Hebrew could think of. I mean, a young lion, as a matter of fact. They could, they could go after any sort of prey and devour it. Yet even young lions suffer want. But those who have the Lord, they lack nothing. So he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And besides sensory experience of the goodness of God, the other thing David highlights in this section is the fear of the Lord. The logic being that if the power and the protection of the Lord are real, so should your fear of Him be real too. So you notice that since David is following this acrostic pattern of going through each letter of the alphabet, he would typically only feel compelled to use the word fear just one time. But he repeats it again and again. So if he was in English, he might use the word fear when he got to F, but it's like he uses it again when he gets to G and then to H and then I, fear, fear, fear. And the point is he's going out of his way to communicate something to us. He wants us to see the importance of fearing the Lord. And I think it's because he understands that the fear of the Lord is the key that can be used to unlock the door of affliction's dungeon. Understanding the fear of the Lord 
is what unlocks affliction's dungeon. Another way to say it is when we're troubled because of abundant fears, the the one thing that we need to remember is that we only have one thing we need to fear. There are so many things that we could be fearful about in a fearful situation. The the person or the threat itself or the, the, the subsequent reverberations of whatever that consequence could be. And you guys know, whether it's some life-threatening situation or just an inconvenience, our minds can just spiral in fear. And what David wants us to say is, there's only one thing you need to fear in your affliction. If you just fear that one thing, you'll be good. There's only one person you should fear, and that is the Lord. David doesn't simply want us to believe him, though. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to live like we fear the Lord. Which, of course, begs the question, well, how does the fear of the Lord demonstrate itself? If the, if the power and protection of God are, is real, how does the fear of the Lord really demonstrate itself in our life? Well, he shows us it's in concrete obedience. Just like real love is demonstrated in real personal sacrifice, real fear of the Lord is demonstrated in keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it. And of course, this list isn't exhaustive. We have the whole of the Bible, really, to show us what the fear of the Lord looks like. But it makes the point, and I think if David were here, he would, he would want us to ask ourselves, as we, come, as we read those lines, how are you using your tongue and your lips? Is it to bless others or to curse? Is it to spread lies or to share the truth? To encourage or to defame? Are you pursuing good or evil with your life? Good or evil with your free time or with your entertainment choices? Are you pursuing healthful, healthy, peaceful relationships? Or when there's misunderstanding or conflict, do you just run away from them or do you just let those relationships fizzle? When you see sin... In, in the lives of people that you love, do you just ignore it or do you, you pursue peace? Do you, do you pursue that person's spiritual health and love, even if that may be difficult? The truth, this truth was also articulated by our Lord when He said this in John fourteen fifteen, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. The expectation is if we love the Lord, God's commands are not burdensome. They're our delight. They're what we want to do. And this is so important to the Apostle John. In fact, it's one of the main themes he writes about in his first epistle. In 1 John 3, 4 through 10, I'll just take one section. The whole book is worth us investigating to see this theme in clarity. But this section is good as well. Beginning at verse... Six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And John, of course, doesn't mean that believers don't sin, because he says just earlier in John 1, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin in ourselves, the truth is not in us. So the, so the person who says, oh, I'm, I'm done with sinning, there's no more sin, he's a liar, so his point isn't that you just don't, you, you don't, you, you stop sinning. There's never any more sin. His point is, if you're a believer in Christ, when your sin, when you, sin is exposed in your life, or you're confronted, or you're, convic- you're convicted, you're, 
the Holy Spirit within you prompts you to want to be done with that sin. You're compelled to want to repent. It's disgusting to you. And so the believer, when they see sin in their life, they want to repent from it. In the least, they're grieved and they seek assistance. Of course, it doesn't mean that they'll never stumble again, but they wouldn't make that the pattern of their life. Anytime that they see sin, it's they want to cut it off. Obedience doesn't mean perfect obedience, but it does mean purposeful obedience. And those who truly fear the Lord will want to follow His commands. So in summary, what are the benefits of fearing the Lord? As he says in the first section, it's all your needs are going to be met. If you're, if you're a righteous person, God's going to meet your needs. You can have confidence that your afflictions aren't because you're, you're undergoing discipline because of disobedience, but that God is somehow utilizing what's in your life, that affliction in your life for good, and He will meet the needs that you have. And secondly, your life's going to be changed. If you fear the Lord, you're not going to be enslaved to sin. You're free from sin to live for Him. And so instead of fighting against God with your life, He's going to be working for you. And the image that comes to my mind is uh, when I lived in Southern California as a teenager, uh, my favorite thing to do whenever I got... And I was never a really good surfer. um, So um, I would take my long board, which is what I preferred. It's a little easier than a short board. And I try to get out to these waves. And usually they weren't super big. But often there could be quite a bit of power behind them. And it would take often 20 minutes to get out to a good wave because every time I would get so far, another wave would come pounding. And if I didn't have my leash attached really well to take the surfboard and cast it back up to the shore. And so I would spend myself and all my energy just trying to get out to a wave. And then even then, I often couldn't ride it in very far. And even if I did, then I have to get up and try it again. And because I didn't do it very often, I didn't have my swimming skills or strength very good. And so I maybe catch three or four waves in, in a couple hours, and it just didn't seem worth it. But if I did get on that wave, it was so much easier, and it was enjoyable. And that's why they do it, right? Surfers don't go surfing so that they can get out to the wave. They go surfing so that they can ride the wave. Or to use a Northwest illustration, it's like, it's like um, sledding. You might have to climb this big hill and trunch through all this snow, but when you get to the top, it's, what you're looking forward to is, is the ride down and the momentum. And that's the enjoyable part. It's not slugging your, your sled up the hill. And often in our life, it just feels like because of weakness or sin, we're fighting against the Lord. But when you're with God, He's working with you, not against you. And that's the benefit of fearing the Lord. Finally, with a third point in the outline, comfort for the afflicted. Verses 15 to 22. It says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The anthropomorphic imagery that we saw in the previous section gets gets continued into this one, but this time its application is to God. You see, it speaks of his eyes, ears, his face, the fact that he hears the cry of the believer. And the section highlights the fact that the presence of God is against the evildoers. And in contrast to that, the presence of God, the person of God, is a comfort to the righteous. So what the righteous might find great comfort and peace in, knowing that God is with them, is just the opposite 
for the evildoer. Because that presence of God is not there for the evildoer, for his good. It's for punishment, for discipline. And note all the different ways the afflicted can find comfort in this passage. In the presence of God, they find comfort. This is seen in verse 15 and verse 18 in particular. And the comfort here is the fact that God has not left them alone. That in the midst of their affliction, though they might feel alone, we looked at that last week, David felt alone when his, when his father and his mother had left them. He said, but the Lord will take me in. You might also recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They had peace. And it says that there was one who looked like the angel of the Lord walking amongst them. God was with them. And how many missionaries have we spoken of finding comfort in the promise that Jesus gave in the Great Commission when he says, and lo, I will be with you always. There is something, there is probably no other promise that is so comforting to the believer than to know God is with us in the midst of affliction, that he knows everything that's going on. And he's with us. We're not alone. Secondly, there's comfort that his presence is against the wicked. And this is highlighted in verses 16 and 21. But the face of the Lord is to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And the affliction will slay the wicked. This demands a tough question, I think. Should believers find comfort in the affliction of the wicked? Especially since we know that we ourselves are evil. That if it, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that there, go, there would we go. We, we, we have nothing in and of ourselves that has helped us become righteous. We are righteous, are considered righteous, not because we've done anything good, but because that righteousness has been imputed to us through Christ. And so if it, who are we to get angry and to, and to seek the destruction of the wicked? How could we find comfort? Can we follow David in his imprecatory prayers where he calls out for God to slay the wicked? Well, it's interesting, too, to note that David isn't making a prayer here of destruction on the wicked. He's he's trying to bring comfort to the righteous. So David is trying to bring comfort. He, He really believes they should find some comfort. But how can we? If we really understand that we are not much better than any wicked man. I think part of it is we need to recognize that we live in a society where wickedness is really tempered. We have a a, a fairly, fairly (laughs) um, uncorrupt police force. We, We believe that if we call 911 that they will be there to get the bad guys and not persecute us. But in many countries of the world, there is nobody to turn to except maybe your immediate family. You have to, it's everybody for themselves. And this was especially the case in David's time. David's at a, writing at a time when there was no police force and there is no natural reason for a person to refrain from evil if they don't have to. And we tend to think of um, wickedness, we think of wicked people in our lives, we tend to think of just people who say bad things about against us. Maybe they're, they're competing with us in the workplace, or maybe they, they say bad things against us. Maybe it's the people who steal. When we think of wicked people, often our idea of wickedness is probably not what David is thinking of here. And yes, are those sins wicked? They are. But more likely than not, David's thinking about people who have abused, who have raped, who have murdered innocent people, and there is no expectation that they will come to judgment. 
It's helpful to remember also that the wicked here are those who have crushed the spirit of the righteous. As he says in verse 18. It's because of the wicked people that, that, this, that David himself is suffering affliction unrighteously. And it's what David sees again and again. And he probably saw this, witnessed it, not only when he served under Saul, but even while he was in Gath. The Philistines were not known for being a very warm people. Very wicked people. And so the comfort that's offered here is really an ultimate appeal to justice. That even if nobody will bring the wicked to justice, God will. God will justly punish the wicked. He sees what they do. And they will be brought to justice. Thirdly, the comfort we find is all who are godly suffer affliction. There's a comfort that afflictions, many afflictions, are part and parcel to being a believer. That when we undergo affliction, it's it, to know that, we're, that nothing strange is going on. Even as, first, as Peter said in his epistle, Beloved, don't think it's strange that you're going through this fiery trial. This is normal. This is part of the Christian life. Don't think something strange was happening to you. It's normal and it's comforting to recognize that. That God isn't being mean to me in this. This is part of being a believer. Is to suffer affliction. It's our allotment. Fourthly, we can find comfort that God will always deliver the righteous. Particularly looking at verse 17. Verse 20 and verses 22. God will always deliver the righteous. Don't miss this promise. I think it's really easy for us to do so. God will deliver the righteous from all of their troubles. You might be prompted to look at verse 20 and even recognize it. It says he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a part of the psalm that was quoted in the book of John, and John applies it as a fulfilled prophecy in reference to Christ. When Christ was crucified, uh, they did not break his bones as would have been custom. Instead, he died before that event would have happened. And John said, that's in fulfillment of this prophecy from Psalm 34. You might be thinking, but wait a second. David's point is, God is going to save the righteous from all of their troubles. Jesus was crucified. How, how, can, how can that apply to Jesus? In fact, it seems to prove just the opposite. Jesus was the most righteous man who ever lived. And he was crucified. How does this make sense, David? Remember, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was delivered from death. So I think we need to recognize that this all, that we will get we will get delivered from all of our afflictions, but that does not necessarily mean in the timing that we expect or in the way that we expect. But we will be delivered from all of them, and there will be a point that we rejoice in reality, not just in hope, but in experience. In the same, in the fulfillment of all that we, all the prophecies that we read earlier, uh, the Mary's Magnificat and what, what Tim read as well, that section of Luke from uh, Zechariah's prophecy. All of, all of our tears will be wiped away someday. And this is why Christ rising from the dead is so significant to believers. Because it's through rising from the dead that Jesus showed us that God could and will deliver us from the ultimate enemy, which is death. There was no thing that we would not be delivered from. Even death has no bind on us. So death, really, for the believer, is nothing but sleep. Because we will rise again. So even if the affliction that we are in will take us to death, even from death we will be delivered. But don't miss the point. And that is, again, God will deliver us. Because, and I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's so easy for us to go, well, that promise has, 
How is that a comfort to me? If, if this is only going to make a difference when I'm dead, it's not that comforting. But I don't think that's the point. Ultimately, if it takes that, ultimately, yes, you will be delivered in death. But the point is, expect deliverance even in life. Because there are so many other afflictions that all of you have experienced, because none of you are dead, that the Lord has delivered you from. And those that He hasn't, you might be delivered from them at death, but you might be delivered even before then. The point of, is, in your mind, you need to believe, I will be delivered. And even if it's in death, I will be delivered. This will not be something that lasts forever. Deliverance is coming. So be comforted. One of the most popular attractions this season throughout the world is Handel's Messiah. In fact, many people uh, make it a Christmas tradition every year to go witness and listen to the Messiah being performed. And I bring this up because very, uh, because very purposefully, Handel begins his masterpiece with this text taken from Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the very first text that is sung after the overture is this. And Handel's being very purposeful about that. What Handel presents to his audience over the next few hours is the reason that they should take comfort. So it's almost like he begins by saying, this Oratio is about comfort. I want you to be comforted. And this is how you should take comfort. And like David, on Psalm 34, Handel, in his musical piece, is calling us to find comfort in the Messiah, who had provided Handel so much comfort in the affliction that he had endured over the past 52 years of his life. See, although Handel was a very brilliant musician, he, eventually, he, he worked in many royal courts. His life was far from comfortable. See, until he finally pinned the Messiah, Handel experienced only nominal success. As one biographer wrote, His occasional commercial successes soon met with financial disaster. He drove himself relentlessly to recover from one failure after another, And finally, his health began to fail. In 1737, he suffered from a stroke which incapacitated him, making it impossible for him to perform or conduct because it paralyzed his right arm and he was right-handed. He also complained of blurred vision. By 1741, he was also swimming in debt. And it seemed that he was going to end up landing in debtor's prison because of it. Shortly after that time, he was inspired by a libretto. Is that right? Libretto? Musical people? All right, we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> I should have known that. But uh, libretto composed by Charles Jennings, Handel was compelled to compose an oratio based upon it. And over the next 24 days, Handel labored, barely willing to eat. He would eat just a little bit because he was just so consumed with wanting to put on paper what he, had, he was experiencing in his mind and in his heart. And at one point, the composer had tears in his eyes and his, he cries out to his servant, I did think that I saw all of heaven before me and the greatness of God himself. He had just finished writing the Hallelujah Chorus. Handel's Messiah was first performed in Dublin in 1742. And it was a benefit concert for charity. And according to one source, proceeds freed 142 men from debtor's prison. A year later, King George II was present at the first performance of the Messiah in London. And it was said that he fell asleep. And when the Messiah, the the Hallelujah Chorus began, he rose to his feet 
thinking it was some sort of cue for him to stand up. And so he rose to his feet, and whatever the reason, that has become the custom ever since to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. And about a hundred years after that, even aged Queen Victoria, who sat in her wheelchair, as that Hallelujah Chorus began, she struggled to get out of her wheelchair and stood as the choir sang, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. She said, no way will I sit in the presence of the King of Kings. And Lord, there is no way for us to figuratively sit in your presence. You have done so much for us. You have set us free from the slavery of sin and of death. We will not experience death because you took our sin for us on the cross. We are free. And not only that, you have continued to pour out your goodness upon us. You have brought us to this wonderful church. You have you've made us a part of the church universal where there are believers throughout the world who share the same experience, the same love, the same passion that we share. That we are not alone. That we are part of one great family. All of this, God, is a gift from you. And you continue to pour upon us in, in wealth, peace, um, Friends, Lord, we we live like kings, though we need not in order for us to be happy. But I'm sure it brings you joy to give us what you give us. And we want to celebrate, not the stuff, though we are so thankful for what you've done for us. We want to celebrate you because you are our treasure. And so, God, even as we continue in this worship service, guide us, flood our hearts with all the reasons we have to rejoice. Because you are what we live for. We give thanks to you because you have given us comfort, eternal comfort. We praise you, Jesus, for all that you've given us. In your name we pray.